Tonight's Bible reading comes from Acts 2, verses 1 to 24. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? How, then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphy Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will... The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Thanks, Katie. If my mic drops out at some point, just yell at me. Cool. So Acts 2 was that passage in case you missed it. Um, from Acts, we learn that the church is built on the promises of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the opening chapters of Acts, in the first one, Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to the Father, but you will receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. This is what happens in Acts because it's Jesus' promise that it will happen. It's just like Jesus promised to Peter in Matthew when he says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's not a suggestion. It's a promise of what Jesus has already planned to do. Church, friends, and family, tonight we kick off the three-week mini-series on Acts. 
um, where, we will feel, where we will see the fulfillment of Jesus' promises to build the church through Peter and the disciples when they witness throughout the whole world because they believed and they, had the, they received the power of God's Holy Spirit. Acts follows the spread of the gospel through the world in the exact order that Jesus said it would happen. First to the Jews in Jerusalem, then to the Jews in the rest of Judea, and then to the half-caste Jews in Samaria, and then to the rest of the Gentile world. Brendan Cottam and Daniel Kivers, they'll also be preaching in the next two following Sundays. They'll also be preaching. Each of us will preach from a main theme from Acts, which is vital to the church's existence um, because 28 chapters is a lot to get through in three weeks. So we'll go thematically. Um, this, this sermon series, the whole thing is titled um, up on the things here. It's titled To the Ends of the Earth to remind us of where Jesus took his gospel like he said he would, and to remind us of our responsibility to spread the good news to all. Let's pray to open up. Father God, holy and powerful, righteous and sovereign and eternally loving God, we thank you um, that you've given us your word and it reveals who you are and um, and it reveals the history of your mighty works. Jesus, we thank you for your work on the cross that purchased us for adoption into God's family. Holy Spirit, please reveal the truth of this text tonight um, and empower us to live it out uh, throughout the week. Please reveal tonight to those who don't believe the need for Jesus. Please, Jesus, reign in our hearts as King and Savior. Any shaky Christians, may you set them in their faith. Any Christians whose flame is about to go out, may you reignite and revive them. Any of us that are proud, may you break us at the sound and the truth of your glorious gospel. Father, may you be our goal and our satisfaction every day as a church and as individuals, as Christ's undeserving bride. Amen. So tonight's sermon, as Katie read, is from Acts 2, and it's titled, um, on the next slide, God the Holy Spirit, When He Comes. Um, and that comes from John 16, when Jesus is promising the Holy Spirit to the disciples, and he says, when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and truth. So tonight we're going to learn about how God the Holy Spirit um, uh, how he works, what happened that crucial day when he came at Pentecost, and what happens when he works in people's hearts today. So if you're a note taker, here's the first point for tonight. Point number one, God the Holy Spirit, he came at Pentecost. And this is found in the first 13 uh, verses of the chapter. Uh, that 13 verse section is an explosive text that describes what happened as God the Holy Spirit interjected into human history to begin the church age. Um, and, it, and so let's, let's read from verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, let's stop there. Um, in order to understand the awesomeness of this chapter, we need to first understand a great deal of history. And I know that we've just come out of like 12 weeks in Old Testament, but we're going to go back for just a second. Um, so bear with me. Um, because the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was a fulfillment of Old Testament feasts. The Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost was a fulfillment of Old Testament feasts. So Pentecost was actually an Old Testament uh, feast, um, a Jewish holiday. 
It was one of seven feasts that are up on the slides. Um, it, uh, that happened throughout the year that God instituted to be worshipped by the Jews. Um, and there was three main holidays um, on the next slide where all of the able-bodied Jewish men, those three ones there, Passover, Pentecost, and Tab- on the Feast of Tabernacles, during those feasts, all of the able-bodied Jewish men had to visit Jerusalem and bring with them the first fruits or the first portion of their crops as sacrifice to God. Um, and so Pentecost was one of these main holidays when all of the men would come to Jerusalem to the temple for worship. Uh, the first of these three main holidays was Passover. This was the holiday where the Jews remembered Um, how God rescued the ancient Jews from Egypt. So they would go to the temple and they would remember and worship God from this. Because um, 1,500 years beforehand, God punished Pharaoh of Egypt by killing every last one of the firstborn humans and animals in all of Egypt, except for those who obeyed God and put the blood of their most flawless lamb from their flock over their doorway. The people who did that, he didn't kill. Um, and then 1,500 years, 1500 years later, that was the day, that was the holiday that Jesus was crucified on, as God's flawless lamb, His sinless sheep, so that God's wrath will pass over anyone, any of us, any of you, only if you are covered by the blood of God's flawless lamb. See, Passover was an image of Jesus's crucifixion. And then there was, uh, we'll skip to the third feast for a second. That was Tabernacles, um, which is for a whole nother time because it talks about, it, it's sort of a reflection of Jesus coming back and a whole bunch of other stuff. We'll go into that different time. Go back to the second one, which was Pentecost, where we find ourselves tonight. This holiday came 50 days after Passover. Um, and this was the feast when they would come to the temple to offer the next harvest offering, the next crop offering, and they would worship God. And this is why in Acts 2.5, where uh, Katie read, it says that all the Jewish men from every nation under heaven were in Jerusalem, because this was the custom. And at that holiday, God would take in the first fruit of the harvest as a sacrifice. And then on this day in Pentecost in Acts, God took in the first fruit of the new covenant. He took in the first collection of souls, if you will, into the church, into this new collection. So this, this, this uh, day of Pentecost in the New Testament was foreshadowed all throughout the Old Testament. How interesting is that? But more so, how amazing is God, who in his sovereignty and wisdom had the day that he would arrive like this, planned out since the days of Moses when they got, got told to do these feasts, and even before that, since before the foundations of the earth, God had this planned. And then he wrote about it and foreshadowed it throughout the whole Old Testament. And here's the practical application for that. Psalm 150 verse 2. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. Jesus, And God has wisely put that through the whole Old Testament. Praise him for his wisdom. So now that we have the background, we can move on from verse 1. So in verse 2, here we see the beginnings of when the Holy Spirit came on that day, he did uh, miracles to show that he was coming. It happened to the 12 apostles who were there, as well as 120 men who were with them. 
uh, in the upstairs room praying. And these miracles are three signs to announce the Holy Spirit's coming. So the first miracle, let's, if you're following along, go to verse 2. It'll be up on the screen anyway. It says, Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. The sound like a mighty rushing wind. Throughout the Old Testament, this kind of sound accompanied God's arrival, symbolizing his power and his new breath of life. Um, at this heavenly sign, the disciples probably remembered Jesus' words when he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. This was a powerful sound. It was God announcing, I'm coming. Here I am. And note, though, that it's not real wind. It was a real sound, but not because oxygen and carbon dioxide and nitrogen were rushing through the air and the molecules were colliding. No, it was a loud rushing sound from heaven. It was a real sound, but not an earthly sound. It was a miracle. Um, and God even used this sound. If you look at verse 6, it says, And at this sound, the multitude came together. This was the multitude of all the men in, Ju in Jerusalem who had come. So God uses it to bring all the Jews together. So that's the first miracle. The second miracle that happened was the tongues of fire. In verse 3, it says, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, each one of the 120. So fire in the Old Testament, again, the Old Testament, it symbolized God's purifying ability, the way that he would purify his people and burn away the unwanted parts of their character. Um, more recently, John the Baptist also uses this sort of imagery. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming is greater than I, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So, this would have uh, been clear in their memory. Um, but note too that this also wasn't an earthly sign. It wasn't earthly fire sitting on their heads. Um, that's not why we see them all bold in, bald in the old uh, paintings of the apostles. No, this was tongues as of fire, showing visible signs of the inner baptism that was occurring. So, um, so the, the wind, the, fire, the tongues as of fire, and then the third miracle is in verse 4. It says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there's two parts to this miracle which are both equally as important. The miraculous part was the languages that they were speaking, and the other part was what they were saying in those other languages. So, first part, the tongues, or the languages that they were speaking. These were the languages of the nations all around Jerusalem and Judea, um, which are listed for us in verse 9 to 11, the ones that are a bit tricky to read. Hey, Katie. And then, <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to say it because I can't do it. Um, and, then, and these were the countries from where all the Jewish men were coming to visit Jerusalem. Um, we know this these are the languages that uh, these 120 men start speaking because it says in verses 6 and 8 um, that each of the multitude heard them speaking in their own native tongue. So that's what they were saying. They were speaking in all these languages they never would have learned. Um, and the second half tells us what they were saying. And the people who were hearing it said, we hear them telling in our own languages, in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. See, they could discount this whole occurrence as crazy drunk guys if they couldn't understand what was happening. 
But the Holy Spirit was clear in what he did. He uses Pentecost, the feast, to bring all of the Jewish men to Jerusalem. Then he uses this great rushing sound to announce his arrival and brings all of the Jews in Jerusalem to this one house. Then he uses um, these three miracles to clarify um, what was happening. He affirms that this is, he intrigues them by using their own languages that, they, that, that these Galileans wouldn't have been speaking normally. And then he affirms that this is the work of their God, the true God, the God of Abraham, because they were speaking praises, Old Testament praises about God's mighty works that he has done through Israel's history. See, these three miracles he did to clarify to the Jews that this was not the work of a pagan God. And he works in the same sort of way today. See, the Holy Spirit doesn't work in, in ridiculous acts of spiritual drunkenness or spiritual ecstasy, nor in acts of praise of us or praise of our works. No, when he comes, he causes, causes a life of praise to God for all of his mighty works, and especially a life that reflects the mighty work that he did on the cross to save his people from sin. That's the Spirit-filled life. So how are you going? Are you living a life that reflects God's mighty ability to save his people? That's what the Holy Spirit did through the people at the beginning of the church, and that's what he's doing today. That was the occurrence of the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, he came at Pentecost. So let's move on to verse 2, which is, God, the Holy Spirit, he preaches Christ through Peter. He preaches Christ through Peter. Here, Peter preaches, right, the first ever Christian sermon. And he explains using three Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah has come, Jesus, who they crucified, was that Messiah, and that the Messiah rose from death. These are the things he's going to tell them. In other words, he's telling them the gospel. What an awesome thing to share. Now, firstly, he explains Pentecost and tells them that the Messiah has come. Um, See, some people had thought that they had explained what they were seeing by saying in verse 13, they are filled with new wine. These Galileans have just been drinking. But Peter dismisses that because as Jews, they would still be fasting from the holiday. So it's too early that they could be drunk, Peter says. See, how Peter explains it is by using a prophecy from the Old Testament from Joel chapter 2 which talks about the work of the Holy Spirit in the time period between Jesus' first and second comings. Um, and this prophecy talks about the Holy Spirit's coming and people having visions and prophecies and dreams and signs on earth and in the sky, smoke and fire and so on. And this is that there's a debate between scholars, as there always is. Um, as to whether these dreams and prophecies and visions are for all Christians all the time now, or whether they were for just after Jesus' coming in the first generations and then just before he comes back the second time, or whether it's for all of us now but to a diff different degree, or whether it's, um, you know, all these different views on that text itself from Joel. But what they all do agree on is the important part, which is the part that Peter pulls from it which is this. These miracles that you're seeing before you are showing that the Messiah, the Lord, has been. 
Look at verse 21, uh, the last verse from the quote from Joel. He says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon, upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the important part. He's saying the Messiah has come. And anyone from all flesh who calls on his name will be saved. There's the point Peter's drawing from the prophecy. So, you know, it doesn't matter about the, what the scholars are arguing about. That's what he's saying. Now, so having established to the Jews, okay, the Messiah's been. But now Peter wants to explain that Jesus of Nazareth, who they killed, is that Messiah. So he says in verse 22, verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Pause there. See, what Jesus, Peter is telling the Jews is that he's saying, hey, this guy called Jesus, who you saw walking around, yeah, that guy, all those mighty works that he was doing, which you knew he, that were miraculous, yeah, they were signs that he was the Messiah from God. And he says to them, and you knew this. Um, and, and at this, at this point, maybe the hearers could think that, uh, I've got a question, okay, if you're saying that Jesus was the Messiah, as seemed to make sense because he was doing miracles, but if this guy was this God-man, how was it that we killed him? Doesn't the very fact that God's anointed one died at our hands prove that we had the power and not him and that he wasn't from God? And this is still a debate, uh, a point today. I hear it when I, when I uh, talk to people about Jesus. They say the same thing. If he's God, he wouldn't have died. End of conversation, apparently. But Peter continues and points out, the, 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 uh, answers that question without them having to ask it. He says in verse 23, this is an important part. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified by the hands of lawless men. So who killed Jesus, Peter? Was it God the Father or these Jewish men at the hands of the Romans? Well, Peter is clear. He says, you crucified and killed, killed him by the hands of lawless men. These Jews were the killers. Yet the Holy Spirit says in Isaiah, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And then in verse 23, right there, Peter says, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. See, the way it worked wasn't that God saw that man was about to kill his anointed one. He said, oh no, oh quick, I'll put all the sins on him and then so that he can die and then uh, be their atonement for sins. Oh, good thinking God. No, he, he didn't respond to man's plans. The crucifixion, the horrible crucifixion, Jesus' murder was God's plan from the beginning. See, these Jews thought it was the Messiah's job to carry out the plans of God, but clearly Jesus didn't do that. But what they didn't realize was that their killing Jesus at the hands of the Romans was the plan of God. Peter defends Jesus as the Messiah by saying that it was God's wise plan to punish Jesus at the hands of lawless men. The fact that God's plan promises the beauty of salvation yet includes the depths of evil just makes it look more wondrous. And he does it for his greatest glory and our deepest possible joy. 
This includes his plan for our church and for us individually in our lives. He uses calamity. God promises he will use bad things, but all for the greatest possible outcome. So, the Messiah has been. Jesus, who they crucified, was he. And now Peter will prove from Old Testament prophecy that God raised him back to life. Uh, Verse 24, it says... God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. See, death has a grip on sin, but Jesus had no sin, so death couldn't hold on to him and keep him dead. So God raised him up. And Peter goes on to prove that Jesus was raised. His main point is this. He goes through a fair few prophecies, which we won't go verse by verse through, but his main point is this. King David prophesied and talked about God not letting his Holy One rot in the grave. But Peter says, since David's grave is just down the road, guys, it's pretty clear he couldn't have been talking about himself. Clearly, the prophecy was talking about someone else. As Peter says in verse 31, he says, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. This Jesus God raised up, and of that, we are all witnesses. All us 120 up here, we're all witnesses of this. They, these Jews who were hearing, they knew David couldn't have been speaking about himself because, well, yes, his grave is just down the road. They knew that the Jewish rulers still hadn't presented the body of Jesus to prove that he was still dead. They knew that now there's 120 men standing before us, sure of what they saw, in that they saw Jesus, and they know that genuine miracles are happening before them. So Jesus of Nazareth seems like he's probably the Christ. And Peter knows that he has them just about convinced. So he pats them on the back and encourages them toward Christianity. No. No, what he does is drive home a hard point. Knowing he has them just about sold, he says, Now let all of the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified. Peter cares not for the sensitivity of his hearers. He wants them to know the truth that will save them. Jesus, who he has been explaining, is Lord. That translation means God, means deity. And Christ, the Messiah of God. And then he says, whom you crucified. If you're a non-Christian today, Peter would have said to you, whom you deny and sin against. This Christ and Lord. So now that he's made them aware of who Jesus is, he reminds them of what they did. The fact that God had planned it was not an excuse. Without Jesus, your sins are evil and against God. And counted against you. Now, Christian, be active in forsaking your own sin, yet be bold in how you talk lovingly to your workmates and family. Sin is real. Don't compromise on that. And only Jesus, who is Lord and Christ, can save your loved ones from hell. He used Peter to preach these words, and God also uses us. So how are you doing on that? How are you going at passing on that tough but beautiful message of salvation, of truth, gracefully telling the ones that you love? How are you going at that? Let me encourage you in that. And then this last strong statement that Peter just said, this whom you crucified statement, it leads us perfectly to point three, which is God, the Holy Spirit, he convicts the world. 
Jesus said this would occur. He said, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment when he said that in John 16. So let's look at how the Holy Spirit convicts the sinner, brings them to salvation, and how it happened this day. Now, when they heard this, this is the Jewish men, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. First thing, when God is saving someone, the Holy Spirit cuts them to the heart. I work in the operation theaters at a hospital, um, and I get to see some pretty cool stuff, including parts of surgeries. And one of the most brutal things I have ever seen is the open heart surgery. It is barbaric. The way that they lay the person down, knock them out first, slice open their chest, and then get out the, I don't even know what they use, and just chug, 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 crack open the bones of the chest and clamp them with these metal claw things to the sides of the table. Sorry if you have a weak stomach. Just rip open the chest. If you saw the first half of an open heart surgery just isolated from its context, you'd be sitting there, somebody call the cops. This guy's a butcher. And in all honesty, these heart surgeons, they're butchers. They just get paid a Lamborghini a day. But when you put it back into its context, you realize that without him cutting down to that guy's bones, without him doing this, this man may die. This surgeon is a hero. He's a lifesaver. This opening of the chest is vital to save their life. And so it is with the Holy Spirit, the great surgeon. If he wants to give you a new heart that can love God and that can go to heaven, he first has a crack open your chest. By telling you and revealing to you your sin, he must first do the work of cutting to your heart. As he did this day to the hearers at Pentecost. Maybe you're asking, or maybe you have friends that are asking, or, or family that you can see, that they, they know, I'm, I'm cut, I'm guilty. I'm not good enough for heaven. I know if I die this night and if God judges me, I'm destined for hell because I cannot get into heaven. I'm aware of my sin. What do I do now? Maybe you have friends asking that question. Maybe you're asking that question tonight. Clearly, I'm hopeless. What do I do? My hands are stained with the blood of Jesus. Well, Peter's hearers asked the exact same thing. He said, they, the hearers said, they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They had no idea, and the world has no idea unless we tell them. Peter said to them in verse 38 in response, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. Maybe you want to know what to do. How much do I have to give? How many times do I have to come to church? Who do I, where do I sign? I'll do anything. I'll do anything just, just to get me into heaven. What do I have to do? The answer is none of that. You do nothing to be saved. What you are called to do is repent. Now that is completely unhelpful if you don't know what the word repent means. It means to know in your mind that sin is wrong. To know that intellectually this is evil, it's going to take me to hell. And then feel at the depths of your heart that you are deeply deserving of hell that only God can save you, that you desperately need his help, to know that in the depths of your heart. To repent means to hate your sin because it's hated by God and because it's going to drag you to hell. We have friends and family who are holding dearly onto their sin and they don't know that it's going to drag them to hell. We need to make them aware. 
Throw it off. Repent. If you're asking, brother, what shall I do to repent? What shall I do? Well, repent. Trust Jesus for forgiveness and then show your joy outwardly and be baptized. That's the command. Not because baptism saves you, but because it's a symbol of who you are, of what is happening. So what then? What, what happens? You repent, you throw it off. Then what happens? What happens when the Holy Spirit cuts someone to the heart and then they repent? Then what? Well, Peter tells us in verse 38. He says, do this for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Instead of hell, we are promised the forgiveness of our evil sins and the free gift of the Holy Spirit. The one doing all these amazing miracles and the one cutting us to our heart. He, God, lives in us so that we can live a life that's more pleasing to God and ultimately so that he can take us to heaven when our short earthly life draws to a close. The grace of God is so much that when you are hopeless, when you have nothing to offer and you realize that you are guilty and utterly hopeless, he becomes your hope, promising you the greatest spiritual blessing he, because he first became your sin and died in your place as your total substitute. He takes our sin and gives us glory. Free. That's an awesome deal. And the rest of your life, even into eternity, is spent in love with him, in relationship with him. Your life will have hardships. Just ask any single Christian. But, the, but you're going through those hardships with the promise of eternity with your Savior. And that eternity will be free of hardships and suffering. When the Holy Spirit comes, he convicts the sinner concerning sin. He does that through us. When the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus said, he will convict the sinner concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin is evil, Jesus is a living God and is righteous, and judgment is coming. Will you repent? Christians, our duty is to remember the glory of God's gospel. Don't get cold in that. Don't be stagnant. Spread it in love and truth to those around us. God has the power to save. He says salvation belongs to the Lord. It's our responsibility to pray, to talk, to converse with, to relate, to answer questions, to ask questions, to promise our friends and to preach to our friends. The rest of the work is up to the Holy Spirit. You love, lovingly talk and pray. So in conclusion, we have God, the Holy Spirit. He came at Pentecost with power, as promised throughout the whole Old Testament. So let's praise God for his wisdom and this amazing new covenant. Secondly, God the Holy Spirit testifies th through us about Jesus' Godship, his death, and his resurrection. And he works to testify through us to the world. So be a part of that. Start somewhere. You don't have to get up and preach like Peter did and exegete three passages from the Old Testament. Just share Jesus with your friends. And thirdly, God the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he convicts the world of sin and then promises them forgiveness for all who call on Jesus. That's a promise, Christians. He convicts the world of sin. When you work, he will bring converts when we work as a church. So repent if you do not believe in Jesus, please. 
and Christians be filled with the Holy Spirit for the mission, the whole mission that the church was founded for, which is spreading the word of Christ to the unbelievers, for glorifying God. Let's pray. While your eyes are closed and your heads are bowed, if you feel as if you have been cut to the heart deeply, if you feel repentance for your sins, or if you desperately want to know more, or if you want to be baptized, whatever, please don't leave until you ask someone that you know is a Christian. God, how amazing your love and wise your plans that you would plan since before creation to have your son killed so that you could justly welcome us into your family. Thank you for your grace so rich that you give forgiveness so freely. Thank you for Jesus dying in our place for our sins. Because of your beautiful love, thank you, Jesus. Reign in our hearts, Lord. You are the Holy One. You beat death, and we thank you for that. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for cutting us to the heart, to give us repentance and forgiveness, and then for living in us, putting up with us, working through us. We thank you. Please make us more like Jesus to proclaim your truth to the, of the gospel to the world, this sick and dying world that needs your love and truth. In the name of our precious King and Savior, Jesus, everybody said, Amen. Let's stand and sing our final song, Glorious Day. Oh, man.